8. If you have your Bibles this morning, chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, one of the most challenging passages of Scripture in God's Word. We're going to dive right in there. Over the last several weeks, we have been looking at this discourse of Jesus Christ that really begins in verse 22 of, the, of chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. If you remember, the chapter opens with Jesus Christ feeding the 5,000. From there, we find Jesus and Peter doing a little walk on the water as they crossed over to the other side of the lake. We now find Jesus and his apostles in Capernaum. They have arrived there, and it is in Capernaum that Jesus Christ announces to the crowd, I am the bread of life. One of the great statements in the book of John. As a matter of fact, it is the first of the seven great I am statements that Jesus Christ proclaims about himself. He looks at the crowd and he says to them, I am the bread of life. Now don't miss it because if we, if we fail to hear the words of Jesus Christ correctly, we'll fail to understand exactly what he's meaning. We must take this entire chapter in its context. Do you remember how Jesus starts this chapter or how John starts this chapter? Jesus Christ feeds the 5,000. He takes a few fish, a few loaves of bread, he multiplies it, and he feeds at least 5,000 men. Many Bible scholars believe that he fed over 10,000 people because of the women and children that were gathered there that day. This crowd pursues him across the lake to the other side. They have had their stomachs filled. And it is in that context that Jesus Christ makes this great announcement, I am the bread of life. Jesus wanted them to understand from a spiritual aspect, only he could quench what men hungered for. Only he could really feel them just as they had been filled just a few days earlier when he fed the 5,000. So do you hear it in that context? Over and over again, Jesus Christ announcing himself to the crowd, I am the bread of life. So this morning we're going to pick up in our reading of this chapter and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Now, we're going to read a rather lengthy passage of Scripture. We're going to begin in verse 48, and we're going to read through verse 49, I mean 59, and we're going to stop, we're going to pause for just a moment, and I'm going to make some comments. And the reason I want to do that is because much of what Jesus Christ is going to say in these verses, verse 48 through 59, is wrapped in symbolism. And if we don't understand exactly what it is that Jesus Christ is saying, it's easy for us to take it out of context. Now, if you know anything about Jesus Christ, you realize this right away. He was the master teacher, wasn't he? There was no one who ever taught like Jesus Christ with the authority that he taught with. The people were amazed by that. And what Jesus Christ would do is he would take an illustration from everyday life, and through that illustration, something that was very common to people, he would teach a very important spiritual truth through it. Don't we see Jesus Christ doing that over and over again? Remember the story about the man who goes out to the field to sow his seed? 
And he uses that to relate it to the Word of God in the same way that the Word of God is sown into our hearts. A major and important spiritual truth. And the same is true here in this passage of Scripture. Jesus Christ is going to take something very simple, the physical body, and through that he's going to teach a very important spiritual truth. See if you can discover it as we read together. So verse 48, now I want you to listen to what Jesus Christ says. I am the bread of life. There it is again. On more than one occasion in this chapter, Jesus Christ has announced to this crowd, He is the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. Now, what Jesus Christ is talking about here, he takes them back on a little history trip back in time. He's speaking about when the children of Israel used to receive manna from heaven. I encourage you sometime to go back, read about the manna that they received. Actually, that manna was a picture of who Jesus Christ would be and the salvation that he would offer us. We see that in the manna that came down from heaven. God gave it freely. The only thing that had to be done was the children of Israel had to go out and pick it up. Think about salvation for a moment. Isn't that exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ for you and I? He has given unto us freely the salvation that His Son bought and purchased for us through the shedding of His blood, through the sacrifice of His life at Calvary. Do you see that in this passage of Scripture? You know, oftentimes we misunderstand the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a shadow of that which is to come. Everything in the Old Testament, the feasts, the festivals, the Ten Commandments, all of these different images we see there are shouting. They are a shadow of that which is to come. Jesus Christ comes on the scene. That which is unclear is now clear. It's all revealed. Jesus Christ says, I didn't come to do away with the law. I came to bring fulfillment in the law. Everything in the Old Testament that was given to the children of Israel finds their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? That is so cool when we can get that picture. Don't you remember what the writer of Hebrews said? The writer of Hebrews said it was just a shadow of that which is to come. I like what my Old Testament uh, survey professor used to say at seminary. He used to say this. He said, boys, if you know where to look, you can find Jesus on every page of the Bible. And you know what? There's as much of Jesus in the Old Testament as there is in the New Testament. Do you realize that? It is. We just have to know where to look, right? And so we very clearly see that, even in this passage. Now listen to what he says here in verse 52. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is a hard teaching, right? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Oh, my goodness. Now, that's not real simple, is it? But we have to see what it is that Jesus Christ is saying. He's speaking symbolically here. 
He's not speaking about the Lord's Supper. Some people believe that. That's not what he's saying. Think about it. He's not even introduced the Lord's Supper yet. Later on, he will do that. He's not speaking about the Lord's Supper. He's speaking about his sacrifice at the cross, that he will willingly lay down his life. He will shed his blood so that mankind's greatest hunger can be filled. Don't you see that here in this passage of Scripture? Now listen to what he says. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. There it is again. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Now let's just pause right here because I want to make sure that we put the words of Jesus Christ in their proper context. Jesus Christ is using an illustration from everyday life. He's using the physical body to teach a very important spiritual truth. Here it is. Don't miss it. Just as a person takes physical nourishment into their body and it becomes a part of them, think about it. We can't live without spiritual nourishment, can we? We must have sustenance to live. Our body takes the food that we take in, turns it into energy that we might have strength and we can live our life. Without nourishment, what will happen? We will all perish. We will all die. So what Jesus is saying, just as a person must take in food to their body, a person must receive me into their innermost being so that I can give them life. Without taking Christ into our hearts and life, without trusting in Him, we have no spiritual nourishment. We will die and perish apart from Jesus Christ. Do you see that here in this text? That is what he is saying. It is so simple. It's just cloaked in symbolism. Jesus is not saying we've got to literally eat his body and drink his blood. Jesus Christ is just teaching them a very important spiritual truth. Think about it for a moment. How does the passage of Scripture open with Jesus Christ meeting the physical needs of the people by providing food for them? Now he's going to come over here as he teaches at Capernaum, and he's going to say, really, your greatest need in life is not for physical food. Your greatest need in life is for spiritual food. And only I can quench your spiritual hunger. If you will only look to me, I am the bread that has come down out of heaven. If you will trust into me, I will give you life. We could just close the Bible right there. We could go home, couldn't we? Oh, my goodness. Isn't that so powerful? Now, you, you walk away from that. You have to be just like me when I walk away from that. I just stand back in astonishment that Jesus Christ could take something so basic and teach such a deep spiritual truth through that, right? But that's how Jesus Christ taught. That's how Jesus taught. Now I want us to go back to this story and I want you to hear how the people responded to Jesus Christ's teaching. All right? So look with me here in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them. Now the word disciple there He's not referring to his apostles. The disciples are that large group of people. 
perhaps over 10,000 people that have come to Jesus Christ. Now listen to what he says here. Do you take offense at this? Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it be granted him by the Father. Now, we talked about that last week. We're not going to go back and labor over that again. Now, listen to what he says here, verse 66. After this... Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil." He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, did you notice what happened in this story? Did you notice what took place with the crowd? There's this great crowd that is following after Jesus Christ. As I stated earlier, maybe as many as 10,000 or more people have come to Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ fed the 5,000, he left and took sail across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee over to Capernaum. This group began to pursue Jesus Christ. There is a huge number of people that have come unto Jesus Christ. And this is what's most amazing to me in this story. Jesus deliberately shares this challenging message that he knows will cause people to leave him. At this point in time in the Gospel of John, I know that Jesus Christ is not a Baptist. There is no way any Baptist minister in his right mind would deliberately preach a sermon to shrink the congregation that he has. But that's what Jesus does. I mean, you think about it for a moment. And when I read this story, the word that I'm, I mean, the question that I'm left with is this why in the world would Jesus Christ do this? He knows when he teaches this, huge number of people are going to leave him and they will never return to him again. And he still teaches this message to them, knowing that large groups of people will desert him, will forsake him. I mean, listen to what it says there. Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. When I read that, I'm just like, what were you thinking? I mean, think about it. Maybe if they just walk a little longer with Jesus Christ. Maybe if they're just introduced a little more to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Maybe they have an opportunity to see more of the glory of who Jesus Christ is. Maybe to come to better understand the truth about what Jesus would do at the cross. But Jesus deliberately preaches a sermon that sends people away. But can I remind you this is not the only place in the Bible that Jesus Christ does that? 
As a matter of fact, there's another place in the Bible where Jesus Christ deliberately preaches a sermon about the cost of following him. And it says he did it to shrink his ranks. And I think, oh my goodness. You know why I think Jesus Christ did this? Because Jesus Christ understood people. He understood was at what was at the heart of mankind. And so he deliberately preaches this message. And as a result of it, many people leave his side to never return. You know, as I read this story here, I began to realize that people in the first century, us people in the 21st century aren't much different than they are. In all of that time, over 2,000 years, the heart of mankind has not changed. And we see that very clearly in this story. Did you notice the crowd in this story? I'm always amazed by the crowd. They're pursuing Jesus Christ. They're wide wide open after Him. You know, as I look at the crowd, this is what I see about the crowd in this story. The crowd were just thrill seekers. They were looking for the next miracle. They had seen the miracle over the feeding of the 5,000. And you know what? When they saw that miracle and their physical need was satisfied, you know what they did? They set out in pursuit of Jesus Christ. Can I submit to you this morning that there are many people like that in our world today? Their whole motive for coming to Jesus Christ is all about what He will do for them physically. They have some kind of special need in their life, some kind of special want in their life, and they treat Jesus Christ like He's some kind of magic genie. And if I rub the bottle, He's going to come out and He will give me three wishes of anything that I want in life. But can I remind you this morning that the single greatest miracle that Jesus Christ can ever give you and I is salvation. Is salvation. Now, I'm not saying that we don't serve a miracle-working God. I believe that is true. But I will tell you this. If you are like the crowd, simply motivated to have your physical need met by Jesus Christ, I will tell you that your expectations will go unmet and you, like the crowd, will end up deserting Jesus Christ. And you know the reason that is? The first time Jesus doesn't meet your expectation, this is what you will say. I can't believe he didn't do what I wanted him to do. But there's another group that I see, or actually another person I see in this story that I believe is a whole lot like people in our world today. It's that guy named Judas. Now, Judas is different than the crowd. Judas is the personification of what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter and the tenth verse, about a man named Demas. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul and see if you don't think this sums up Judas' life. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. That was Judas. 
Judas was in love with the present world. The guiding forces of Judas's life was power, position, and prestige. Judas thought Jesus would be a king of an earthly kingdom, that he would come and he would restore the nation of Israel back to prominence. And as one of his followers, when Jesus Christ came into his earthly kingdom, that would mean power, riches, and glory for him. He loved the things of this present world more than he loved Jesus Christ. When Jesus didn't fulfill Judas' desires, he became disillusioned. And I will tell you, there are many people like that today in our world in which we live in. They have never truly repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. They have an agenda they won't field. They love the present world more than they love Jesus Christ. What's most important to them is living the American dream, being comfortable, having the pleasures of this world that is what motivates them that is what drives them they are just like Judah they have an image who they think of who Jesus should be and when he doesn't measure up they become disillusioned and they quit following do you see what I'm saying am I the only one that sees that But I would tell you there's another group in this story this morning. This is the group that I refer to as the genuine thing. The real deal. They're the genuine article. This group are the true followers of Christ. The other two groups in this story are counterfeits. This group, well, they have considered the cost in following Christ. They have put their hand to the plow and they refuse to look back. They have heard the words of truth spoken by Jesus Christ and realize that eternal life is found in Him and Him alone, and it is evident by the life that they live. You see, the first group asked the question, where's the show? The second group asked the question, what's in it for me? But the third group, this is the question they ask, where will I go? You are the one who have the words of life. Do you notice that was the response of Peter on behalf of the apostles in this passage of Scripture? Did you see that here in this text? I want you to listen to this dialogue quickly that happens with Jesus Christ and Peter. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It is in this declaration of Peter that we find out what it truly means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. If you noticed in this declaration, first, Peter... First, Peter recognizes that Jesus Christ alone has the words of eternal life. That's exactly what Peter said. You and you alone have eternal life. Now, I'm not going to belabor this. We talked about it last week. Very clearly in this passage of Scripture, eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. If you're going to come to Christ, I mean, if you're going to come to salvation, you must come to Christ. But this is what I wanted you to think about this morning. I want you to think about the shortness of life, the certainty of death, and the reality of eternity. And when you stop and think about those three things, you will realize Jesus is your only hope in life. 
There is no other hope. Only Him. Second, in this passage of Scripture, Peter acknowledges that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He actually refers to Him in this passage as the Holy One of God, is what he says. Actually, that is a term that was used by Isaiah in his book when he wrote a prophecy about the long-awaited Messiah. Now, we know that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of those prophecies in the Old Testament. The long-awaited Messiah was the one who would save the children of Israel from their sins. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior of the world. In this declaration, Peter is acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Number three, Peter understood that Jesus Christ must be Lord of all. Jesus is far above all else. Peter looked at Jesus Christ and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? The answer, there are no others that can compare to you. You are Lord, is what he proclaims. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is Jesus Christ truly Lord of your life? The best way to answer that question is this. Ask yourself, who is your faith in? Whoever's the Lord of your life is who your faith is in. I think it's probably best summed up this point about the Lordship of Christ in a story that I read this week. It's actually a parable. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I want you to listen to this story. It is a story that is written by a man named Juan Carlos Ortiz. I want you to listen to it carefully. It's about a precious pearl that he wanted to buy. Just listen to the words. One day, a man is walking in the market and sees a magnificent pearl. He says to the merchant, I want this pearl. How much does it cost? The seller says, it's very, very expensive. How much? The man asked. A lot. Well, do you think I can buy it? The man asked. Oh, yes, says the merchant. Everyone can buy it. But I thought you said it was very expensive. I did. Well, how much for it? Asked the man. Everything you have, says the seller. All right, I'll buy it. Okay, what do you have? Asked the merchant or the seller. Well, I have $10,000 in the bank. Good, 10000 What else? That's all I have. Nothing more? Well, I have a few dollars in my pocket. How much? Well, let's see, $100. That's mine too, said the seller. What else do you have? That's all, nothing else, said the buyer. Where do you live, the seller asked. In my house. Oh, you own a home. The seller writes down, house, it's mine as well. Where do you expect me to sleep? In my camper. Oh, you have a camper, do you? That too. Well, what else? Am I supposed to sleep in my car? Oh, you have a car? Well, actually, I have two. They're both mine now. Look, you've taken my money, my house, my camper, and my car. Where is my family going to live? Oh, 
so you have a family. Yes, I have a wife and three kids. Oh, well, they're mine now. Suddenly, this seller exclaims, Oh, and I almost forgot. You yourself, too. Everything becomes mine. Wife, children, house, money, cars, profession, and, oh, by the way, you, too. Then he goes on. Now listen. I will allow you to use all these things for the time. But don't forget, they are all mine, just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up. Because now I am the owner of everything. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this story. This story is not teaching us that we have to somehow do something to get our salvation. If that's the point you've gotten, you've missed the understanding of the story. That is not what this story is about. The Bible very clearly teaches us that we are saved by grace through faith. But I want you to listen carefully because here is the point of the story. True followers of Jesus Christ have counted the cost and they recognize the preciousness of salvation and they have trusted Christ and as a result, they have given Him everything. They've given Him their treasure, their time, their talent, their family. They've given them their life. That's the true indicator of genuine salvation. He is Lord of all. That's what Peter said. Lord, Where else will we go? You are the one that have the words of eternal life. When he made that statement, do you know what Peter was saying? You have all. Everything, Lord, is yours. Where else would I go? You see, followers of Jesus Christ are those who have counted the cost. And because they've counted the cost, they realize there is nothing greater that this world has to offer except bow their knee and to confess, He is Lord. Here I am. It all is yours. Do with it whatever you desire to do. Let me ask you something this morning. Have you truly come to that place in your life? The crowd forsook Jesus Christ. It was a hard teaching. Do you know what the teaching was about? Count the cost. Count the cost was the challenge of Jesus' words. Father God, we thank you for your word and the way it speaks truth into our hearts and our lives. Father God, this is a very challenging message. 
And Father, I pray that first and foremost, each one of us would examine our lives to see where we are in our relationship with you. Perhaps there's people here, Lord, that have never trusted you as their Lord and Savior. Maybe that's the decision they need to make. Perhaps others are here and they've trusted you, Lord. And one time you were, Lord, but they've allowed the cares of the world to come into their lives and to cloud their vision. And really what they need to do more than anything else is to once again acknowledge your Lordship in their life and submit everything that they have to you. Lord, you work during this time of invitation. You be honored and glorified. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.